You're listening to Atlas of Chiropractic, the show where we uncover upper cervical chiropractic care for healthcare professionals, students, and potential patients. I'm Dr. John Stenberg, and with my co-host, Dr. Cameron Bearder, we are your guides to a behind-the-scenes look at the science and practice of upper cervical chiropractic. Welcome back to the Atlas of Chiropractic podcast. We've got Dr. Cameron Bearder with me today, and we're going to do something a little different. We get a lot of questions from particularly students, but other docs too, uh, on social media. And so we wanted to do a listener Q&A episode. These are things that were uh, presented to us directly as topics for discussion on the podcast. So we're going to do our best to address some of these. We can't answer all the questions we got because it just would take forever. But we've uh, got a couple different topics that we lumped a few of the, the um, I guess, more direct questions to answer. So we're going to do it in, in a two parts. Uh, one is based on assessments in upper cervical, and then one is in case management. So how we uh, you know work through cases with patients over time. Uh, and so before we get into the specific questions, um, I guess this just would be my disclaimer. Like we, we're not saying that we're the experts on all things upper cervical. Um, I, I've heard, I mean, news travels fast in a small community. I've heard a few rumblings about folks that may or may not be happy with some of the things I'm saying on the podcast or have differences of opinion about some of my, my points of view. And that's, that's okay. I, I'm not claiming to be the expert on the topic and um, we're, we're younger docs. You know, we don't have 40 years of experience, but what we're attempting to share in these conversations is how we're dealing with these questions individually in our practices with our training and with the things that we're seeing. Uh, so we're, we're learning in real time and we're making an attempt to share what we're learning uh, as we explore the ins and outs of upper cervical care you know, from a uh, scientific and technique based perspective. So if, if folks have more uh, more information to add, you've got different experiences that you'd like to share, I'm all ears. Uh, if, email me at blairchiropodcast at gmail.com. I'm happy to have a conversation about what you know that's different than what I know. Uh, so we're, again, not not trying to, you know, to, to present ourselves as the authorities on the topic of upper cervical, uh, but this is, the, this is the sandbox we play in and we're studying and learning and, and attempting to grow in this area all the time. So we're kind of sharing our process and what we're learning as we go with you guys. So so when folks send us questions, just understand that there are limitations to what any one person can bring to answering that question, right? With their level of experience, uh, their training, their perspectives, uh, the types of patients they see, that sort of thing. So it's all, all, all in context. But with that in mind, I think, you know, a lot of the questions that we've encountered uh, or, or that students or, or docs have sent us are things that are reasonable questions to ask, you know, when you're approaching an upper cervical practice model. And I think they're not unique. I've, I've had a lot of conversations with docs offline and at conferences and places about some of these questions. So it's not just things that, you know, we're wondering or seeing. It's it's things that other docs are wondering and seeing too. Um, so, Dr. Bearder, do you want to add anything to the intro here? Or do you want to jump right into the content? No, not much to add other than just explorations in upper cervical technique, philosophy, implementation science, you know, all of that. There's no one way to do it. If there was, there'd only be one upper cervical technique and we wouldn't have these questions. So, Yeah, it is 100% us musing. And Dr. Beard and I have similar personalities in the way that we like pick stuff, like to pick stuff apart. And we were just having a conversation before we started recording about how, you know, there are different personality types. Some people just want to, they want to prove things to themselves and for themselves. And other folks are a little bit more, you know, prone to trust the wisdom of experience of others. So on to the questions. We're, we're going to start with the assessments. And there are some specific questions about uh, upper cervical technique concepts, imaging analysis, and then uh, the incorporation of other types of you know, procedures into upper cervical assessments. So first question, how important is, quote, laterality? Upper cervical is very specific on alignment and other techniques, i.e. functional neurology, bring in hemisphericity concepts. So a lot, a lot of tongue pack in that one question. But first, do you want to define 
hemisphericity. I think most of our listeners will understand that when we talk about alignment and laterality, we're talking about you know the side of the subluxated upper cervical spine is the right or the left, anterior yep. posterior. Uh, so what is, define hemisphericity and let's, let's get that uh, clear first. Absolutely. So hemisphericity from the functional neurology lens, and that's, the, we'll take the chiral neurology lens. Uh, the, the terms are interchangeable, functional neurology and chiral neurology. So it's essentially the, the theorization that a side of the brain, left versus right, is not firing properly. So generally having a different, what's called central integrative state from one side to the other. So we classically think left brain versus right brain. So previous, what we'll call research has indicated that there are certain functions that are dominant on the right brain versus dominant on the left brain. So that would be classical hemisphericity. Uh, If you think about like Google Maps in terms of if you have directions, you have the highway, right? So from point A to point B that would be the classical hemisphericity and that you're going to get on, you're going to go from point A to point B and it's a straight shot. Okay. It's unfortunately not as simple as that. It is more complex. It's kind of like highway versus back roads. So for example, when you look at pursuit pathways, uh, you go through major areas of the brain, the circuitry. So we have a little bit of highway and back road and that's the reality, but largely you can classify gross motor function or gross neurological function to sidedness. You can't just necessarily say, oh, it's the side of the brain in exclusivity, but it makes it easy or more concise from a treatment standpoint, which is good when you're treating patients, you know, and you don't have five hours to do so. Okay, got it. Um, so the, the, the merging of these two concepts, and, and I know there are folks that have, have made attempts at this and have had conversations about it is, you know, when we adjust the upper cervical spine, if we're thinking in terms of, you know, we want to create a neurological change, do we consider a, hemispheris- a hemisphericity model with where we choose to make our adjustment, which side of the spine we choose to make our adjustment? Yeah. Now, coming from a, a Blair perspective, that's a little bit more of a achievable end because the, you've got side opposite adjusting, right? Mm-hmm. If you've got an ASL and you want to adjust on the right side of the spine for hemisphericity concepts, that's an easy, you can do that. Correct. I know just hearing some folks talk at the orthospinology symposium, there's potentially also the option to do that from an ortho perspective as well and choose to, instead of drive it down, lift it up on the opposite side and and, and choose your technique parameters specifically to incorporate both ideas. Um, I have personally not, not dabbled in that. That's not something I have clinical experience with merging those two concepts. Uh, Do you have some experience with that? And, And if so, what has been, observations of, of trying to blend those two concepts? Yeah. So initially I would say like when I started to dive into functional neurology or chiro neurology, we you know, obviously uh, tried to make it as simple as possible and applicable. And so it would have, it was more of the hemisphericity, but the deeper I got into the neurology, I learned pretty fast that that model probably isn't as specific as we'd like it to be. And so with the element, you know, of specificity in mind, which is what we all love to talk about, I moved more into what we'll call the Carrick model of functional neurology, which is particular pathways and things like that. But um, there are practitioners that I know of, not upper cervical, but there are practitioners that I know of that you that basically exclusively do the hemispherosity model. Um, they have really successful clinics, so they're doing something right. And I think if it, it would be easier to implement if you didn't want to get into the the whole the weeds of all the pathways and whatnot. You would still have to have more than a cursory understanding, but I mean, you know, as we were, t- as we got these questions and I'm, I'm thinking about them, honestly, it probably would work fantastically in that if you have a right hemisphericity, you know what, adjust them on the left, like it and modify your factors to do so. So that's how I started. I didn't do it too, too much because I realized really fast that I wanted to do more, but I think it could be something that is very easily incorporated. Gotcha. Yeah. And, th- and this particular question, I think, was coming at it from a, you know, w- with an assessment perspective yeah. when we're choosing or we're qual- quantifying or qualifying laterality as as a dominant clinical objective to correct, which do we prioritize, the structural or the neuro? Yeah. Um, and do the things agree? Do they not agree? If they don't, how do you choose? For, for, for the average upper cervical chiropractor, we're going to we're going to lean very heavy on alignment. You know, there aren't too many of us that are going to 
compromise our our structural technique assessments for something like a hemisphericity model yeah. if you don't have a high level of understanding you know of those of those models interesting question i think it's one that is going to prompt further discussion over time yeah. as a lot of folks are starting to i mean there there are a number of upper cervical chiropractors not a whole lot that are looking at the intersection of functional neurology and traditional structural concepts and i think in time answers to questions like these will become a little bit uh, more clear and there will be a, a maybe a more systematic way yeah. to handle that you know for the average upper cervical chiropractor and do so confidently that you're going to make the most appropriate adjustment uh, at the right time with the correct uh, information in front of you. So in well, the meantime, most of us will probably lean on our, our structural indicators for laterality. And I think that's for the students who potentially, you know, I know we have a lot of Blair students. That's a very, uh, very popular technique camp right now when it comes to student involvement. For the students who don't know an orthogonal or are familiar with an orthogonal technique, laterality means something different and that uh, it's relative to the atlas plane line. So you're looking at a nasium or a frontal view. So you would think AP open mouth or an AP. Uh, and then you, you have your atlas angle from that. And then you have a head tilt. So laterality classically is, is the head tilting down on the acute side. Um, when you try and merge that, it's almost, well, it's not impossible. You would have to take a lot of x-rays. And so cone beam, again, we talk about this all the time. Cone beam is the intersection of many of these things in that you could have an acute angle, let's say like a, le a left laterality. And then you go and you find that that person has a, an articular ASR between C0, C1, right? So, or an ASL, or maybe they don't have anything at all. So how are you going to treat that? You know, trying to blend the models or whatnot. And sometimes they agree, sometimes they don't. And obviously the Blair uh, laterality is going to be more of that disarticulation or segmental. And I, I, I think that the more people that adopt cone beam, the more we're going to see that certain things agree, certain things don't agree, uh, which is very exciting. You know, I, I look at that for every single new patient we have, every scan we take. Uh, but to answer your question, you did make a question, and we don't know how many people are doing upper cervical and functional neurology. It's less than six. I'm counting. So just so you're aware, um, <laughs> it is it is less than six because pimping ain't easy. Well, and, and again, with the Blair model of misalignment, like you and I have had conversations about this and it's, you know, when we try to compare technique assessments, you know, and try to find common ground with, you know, how we classify a misalignment of this upper cervical spine, you know, Dr. Blair's predominant, you know, concept of misalignment was that the, the, the A to P vector is, is predominant with those occipital condyles and you end up with an overlap or an underlap because of the convergence. But it's the spine traveling forward or backward until it, quote, hops the track or jumps the track um, is what provides that misalignment that you see on the right or the left. But it's not necessarily that the atlas wedged, wedge side slipped to use an HIO term, yep. you know, in a, a sort of linear fashion, right or left. So it, it is different. It's a different classification. It's a different understanding of the mechanics. And then the adjustments obviously are suited towards those differences. Yeah. Cool. Speaking of CBCT, moving on to the next question, and this this one we'll, we'll try to handle briefly, you know, and, and try to answer it directly, but it could be a longer conversation. How do we know that we are analyzing CBCT correctly, uh, i.e. translating the same line drawing that we would do traditionally on a 2D assessment to a 3D model? And then there's a follow-up question about this. How do we know that the Blair analysis on 2D is correct for 3D? It's a good question. And, and I think one that is kind of plaguing, you know, the upper cervical community right now is, is with this imaging technology, what, what things are more or less important, you know, in our technique assumptions, like how do we understand the jump from, you know, 2D to 3D modeling? And so a couple, a couple clarifying points, then I'll let you get into an answer. When you say, how do we know that we're analyzing the CBCT correctly? I think there's, let me just say this. Most folks that are using CBCT for Blair analysis, they're not getting their traditional Blair angles and listings from the 3D image. 
the 3D reconstruction. We're doing, we're using the 2D, the multiplanar reformation, the MPR, as our way to extract those traditional Blair views, take our measurements, probably more accurately because of less projection distortion. And then we'll look at the 3D image to analyze, let's say, the lower cervical spine, global considerations of head and neck misalignment, and then looking at those articulations with a different view. So I, so it's not that we're we're forsaking the 2D image because on a cone beam CT, you get both, yep. right? And so that's the, that's kind of the nice part about it is you can, you can see both. Um, but as far as translating the same line drawing from 2D to 3D, I learned how to do a Blair analysis on CBCT from Jake Hollowell's course, which basically teaches you to do a traditional Blair analysis uh, using a different type of imaging modality. Yeah. And so how do we know that the Blair analysis is correct? Well, you do it the same way you would do a Blair analysis. You just don't take the films the same way. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you get your protractile views, you get your BP, you know, you've got your laterals and, and you go through the same steps in the Blair technique that are, you know, basically well-established, tried and true, but the way you arrive at uh, those images is different. I hope that makes sense. Yeah. So <clears throat> thoughts on how we are to think about translating a line drawing analysis from 2D to 3D. Yeah. Well, and that's the, to kind of echo your comment about uh, you're, you're just doing, you're do, literally replicating the Blair analysis in a cone beam setting. Um, and to that, I think that's really important in that if you're paying, as if the doctor or the student is paying attention is your is your are your two D tenants carrying over to the to the are your two D X ray tenants carrying over to the three the perceived three D right or the NPR um, and the thing about cone beam is you can you can bring it you can bring it as far down as like three at least in my machine three hundred micrometers or it's like insanely small and then you can expand it out into more of a traditional X ray so you can actually look through the joint itself or look through you can go through different portions of the bone. And so again, is are the are the tenants lining up from the 2D analysis from X-ray with now the 3D capabilities on cone beam with their with that version of 2D? And I think that's how you'll know, uh, or at least start to know, is the analysis correct, right? But on top of that, and I think what's more important, and I know you're sick of me saying this because I say it quite a bit offline. Um, we're assuming that the 2D analysis is correct in the first place. Uh, not saying that it, that it's wrong or right, but when when we're talking about 3D structures and we're trying to create these 3D vectors of correction, we're doing so based off of shadow projections. So that's the distortion, projection distortion. You have it's Polaroid pictures. That's what an X-ray is. It's a Polaroid picture of a shadow. And from the Blair perspective and the orthogonal perspective, you're taking a series of Polaroid pictures of shadows. And you're trying to extrapolate what the 3D structure is going to look like. And there's a whole host of issues there. So clearly things have worked in terms of, well, the techniques have survived this long and we've gotten the results that we're known for. But, you know, the question becomes is if we're finding that as people are transitioning over from 2D to cone beam and we're finding that we're getting the result, but we're not we're getting we're not getting the result the way that we think we are. or Our understanding is not necessarily what we thought it was. Then we're going to start to have to, you know. <clears throat> modify that but um this is again where the blending of the techniques come in in that we're gonna we're gonna have to we're gonna have to start proving some of these things and that's more on a longer time horizon or runway than it is you know oh someone's gonna get cone beam and they're gonna figure it out in five days because this has been around since 1920 you know i don't i don't not super up on the history of bj palmer with hio uh so don't throw rocks at me for the philosophy folks but uh, we we have a lot of work to do, and this is something that's going to be ongoing. This this question to me is the most important one when it comes to upper cervical, and I honestly don't think that many people are going to be interested in answering this question uh, because they're going to do what Daddy did, right? And that's a little yeah that that that's how we do it. We don't question things, and like you and me start questioning these things, and we arrive at different answers, and we have to start re-explaining them, re-explaining the answers to ourselves and our patients, because there, there are some things that are not lining up, pun intended. 
Well, I think we also have to acknowledge that, like, you know, Dr. Blair used the tools that he had available to him exactly you know, to, to image the spine and to develop these technique uh, breakthroughs, you know, or innovations, should we say. And it's, it's not, I mean, it's, it's common knowledge. It's, it's scientific fact that when you take an x-ray, there is a distortion yeah. of the image. What you see on your screen or on your plane film, God forbid any of you are still dipping your films, is um, it's, it's not exactly the way that it is in the body, yeah. right? We know that. That's why we make an effort to have the proper, um, the proper settings with your x-ray equipment so that you get the best possible image, but it is distorted. Yeah. And so it's, it's kind of an interesting thing to think about. Like if you were to, you know, some of these CBCTs are, are huge with their fields of view and you can get the whole entire skull and, or the entire neck down to T1. And so if you were to pull an asium off a CBCT and then take an asium with an x-ray and compare the two, that would be really interesting to me to yeah. see are those measurements exactly the same or are they uh, the same enough, you know, to lend themselves to being like consistent across technique um, guidelines. And, and I know um, Dr. Jeff Besso, who he's kind of made himself, I don't know, I don't want to say the voice of reason, but like he's continued to, you know, a couple different forums that I've been at remind folks that like, Hey, just because CBCT is, is the new kid on the block and is sexy and is, you know, the thing that everybody's really, you know, hot and heavy and excited about, like we have to understand that our technique systems and our, our standards with x-ray are solid. And it doesn't mean that everybody needs to jump to CBCT right away. And, and in, I agree with him in a lot of ways. And in some ways I don't think that it's just people are excited because it's sexy and because the 3d looks cool. I think people are interested in higher quality imaging. Yeah. I don't think that it's just a shiny object. I think a lot of us that were maybe earlier adopters of CBCT are going like, Hey, I've, I've, I want a better image of the spine. You know, yeah. I want a more accurate representation of what's going on beneath the surface so that when I take these measurements and when, when I make my adjustment, I'm that much more accurate with my understanding of what's going yeah. on. Yeah. Um, so there are some I, folks that maybe quick adopters because it's it's new technology, it's interesting, it's flashy, it's easy to show off to patients. But I, I, I don't think that's the real reason that a lot of folks in upper cervical are interested in it. Yeah. Um, some, but I do think that for a lot of us, we're going like, we know that the base posterior, the way Dr. Blair took it, had distortion. And if we're measuring convergence angles and we, we're making assumptions about our adjustments and our technique ass assessments based on you know, this range of convergence angles that Dr. Blair measured, but we know that they were subject to distortion. I want to get that without the distortion. Yeah. I want to see what those angles really are in more people. And and I think that's where those of us that are a little bit quicker to adopt CBCT are going like, hey, if Dr. Blair said 18 to 33 degrees, but a lot of the docs I've talked to that have been taking CBCTs are saying, you know what, those, those convergence angles are probably a lot steeper yeah. on average than what Dr. Blair measured. That's an interesting observation, and it should make us think about well, what does that mean for our technique assumptions. Yeah, um, it's huge. Yeah, and, and, and even with something like convergence angles, I've talked to a few docs about this offline. I won't name their names because I don't want them to get, uh, you know, catch any flack for this. But it's like, how important is a convergence angle yeah. for well, if you have a CBCT? I mean, yeah. you've got the ability to look around the bend. You've got the ability to change those, you know, change those parameters to get a crystal clear image of that joint. And you can look at it at different points along the joint. And Dr. Blair was trying to get one shot that would show it the best possible way. So the very, very precise measurement of that convergence angle was to take a protracto view. So, you know, maybe, I don't know, you know, it's, it, my, the way my mind works, it goes like the end goal is to get the misalignment, right? Mm -hmm. Is to measure the misalignment in the angles of the spine. Does that mean that we have a little bit of wiggle room and how accurate our, our convergence angles are? Because on CBCT, you can fine tune it and you don't have to just shift it seven degrees and take another one. You know, um, I think it's interesting to think about some of those things. Um, and, and I do think and this has been said before, but I do think a mind like Dr. Blair's would be would be working on that. Mm -hmm. You know, a mind like Dr. Gregory's or Dr. Grostick's or Dr. Yeah. Um, yeah, no. they would be they would be thinking about like, okay, how do we 
how do we leverage this technology to get that much more specific or that much more uh, accurate? So um, I, I, I hold two sides of the coin on this. Like the tried and true way is going to get results, right? We know that and that nobody's suggesting that it's not. Uh, but, you know, when you have new imaging and you have new frontiers, I mean, I, I, I'll put it this way. I haven't heard anybody say to Dr. Rosa, well, who cares about MRI? We've been getting good results. Why would you do, you know, why would you modify your technique for an upright MRI? Dr. Sweat yeah. already has a rock solid assessment to use on an x-ray, right? So, you know, we, we like to choose when we apply these uh, critiques sometimes, and that's okay. But I do think it's a, it's a good question, and it's one that a lot of us are thinking about. And it's one that diplomates and the ICA Council on Upper Cervical Care and practicing chiropractors that are diplomates or are not diplomates are going to continue to explore. Absolutely. It is an ongoing question and answer. Yep. Ongoing. Last question as it relates to um, the assessments portion of it. Uh, and I will answer briefly on this because Dr. Bearder's probably got a more in-depth uh, answer on it. And the question is, relative to upper cervical practice, what aspects of functional neurology do you incorporate into your exam? So if I were to just answer as a you know traditional upper cervical chiropractor, I would say, well, I don't do functional neurology, so those assessments don't really you directly impact how I'm going to treat the patient. But here's, here's the things that I've chosen to incorporate. And, and it does depend on the patient. Like if you're going to take a, let's just call it straight, quote unquote, chiropractic, like very um, purest upper cervical, you know, perspective with this, like you're going to do your exam to find your upper cervical subluxation. And you're not going to worry too much about the symptoms or the condition the patient presents with. But for me, I want to have a pretty good understanding of some of these conditions and, and how confident I can be that my upper cervical adjustment is going to help the patient feel better um, as, as an adjunct to just doing the upper cervical part of it. So when I get a dizzy patient, for example, like I'm going to incorporate you know, some basic cervicogenic dizziness tests, right? You've got the smooth pursuit neck torsion test. You've got cervical relocation test. You can add things like a Romberg's. Um, you can add things like a Fukuda step test. You can add things like a finger nose finger test. You can do different gait assessments. I mean, these things are all with very minimal tools or technology data points, you know, that help you assess the functional capacity of the, of the nervous system. And it's really interesting to see some of these things break down in situations. And, and then you can test them later and see if they improve. Those tests that I mentioned right there are probably the ones that I do most. Um, a lot of the things that I incorporated into my exam are things I learned from Dr. Chung's course, um, upper cervical neurology for the upper cervical chiropractor. I mean, he went into heavy detail with those pathways you were talking about from a Carrick model, uh, what you're testing with different procedures um, and, and sort of the the next step being, how would you treat those? Yeah. So for a lot of them, I don't treat them directly. I don't do functional neurology. I don't have training to do that. Uh, but those assessments are really not functional neurology assessments. They're physical assessments um, that lots of practitioners can use. Um, and you can, you can add layers of technology to that or um, specificity to that, depending on what you think is going on with the patient. I mean, hell, even vital signs, that's neurologically relevant, right? Yeah. So if you're taking vitals on a patient, like that's neurological information about their functional status. Um, you know, a HINTS exam, if you're, if you're worried about, you know, someone having a vascular type of event, like you can do those types of things. So, so as far as you see practice, you got to choose your outcomes, right? Like I think when you decide what you're going to assess, it has everything to do with what outcome you're after. Uh, so traditional upper cervical techniques will do a really good job of showing you what things you need to measure so that you can assess the patient on a day-to-day -day basis and take care of them from a subluxation perspective. And then for conditions or, you know, specific considerations with uh, the nervous system, like those things are things you can check, monitor over time, and uh, hopefully see them improve. And if you're not, you know, then you can troubleshoot for what do we need to do to see those things improve if it's 
directly related to how the patient feels. Uh, so, so that's that's my answer to it. Um, and do you, well, let me ask you this two ways, just yeah. so that you can answer more directly. What functional neurology assessments do you include with every patient? And then how do you get more specific when it's related to specific conditions or presentations? Yeah. You'll have to remind me of some of those. Uh, so every, I should start by saying this. I, for lack of a better word, restrict or focus. I narrow my focus in terms of the type of patients that I want to see. So I typically like, I, I don't want to see low back pain stuff. I don't want to see extremity stuff. I want to do head and neck conditions. So that helps guide my exam to where the majority of my patients, new patients, we do, we have the same framework in terms of examination. Um, and of course, there's other things that I'll bring in for a case by case type of scenario. But uh, honestly, and this is, this I always giggled at this when I realized it, but the exam that we're taught in diagnosis, you know, procedure, diagnosis, um, uh, the CLET classes at, at life, that's pretty much what I do. Um, now, I've, we mod, I've modified it to what I call the Carrick exam, which is now just more of those things and more in-depth. But it's all reflexes, cranial nerves, it's eye movements, it's balance. So my bedside exam is heavy functional neurology and um, diagnosis classes. So like, I don't do too much visceral stuff. I do depending on the person, but it's, it's a lot of what Linkhorn taught us. It's a lot of what Capes taught us, Bogliardo, like all these professors, Dr. Herman, like all these professors taught us the, the most standardized exam that's agreed upon pretty much across all healthcare denominations. So that's the framework. Um, and then I move into more of the tech-based stuff. So that's quantifiable. So I will do uh, something called neck care, which is range of motion, proprioceptive, joint position error, and fine motor control where the cervical spine, and then I use posturography. So you've got CAPS, Burtec, and then B-Tracks. And so you can look at weight distribution. You can look at uh, MCTSIB, so proprioception, vision, vestibular, senses, and sensory integration. You can do something called a cervical challenge, single leg stance. All of this stuff is more of the functional neurology side of things, but it's through the larger lens of these are the conditions that I see because I know these conditions have a high likelihood of an upper cervical dysfunction component. I know that these conditions have a high likelihood of things that connect, like I talked about at the Blair conference, things that connect into these systems that complement um, or communicate with the upper cervical spine. So it's essentially every patient gets the same framework of we look at spine, eyes, and inner ear. Um, and a lot of that has been drawn in from the Carrick model of uh, functional neurology or chiropractic neurology. One of the best classes for students or doctors who are interested in kind of incorporating the receptor-based model is, uh, I think they've renamed it to functional neurology essentials. It's a four-day course. Like it is literally nine to six straight through and it covers hemisphericity, covers all these things. And there's a good exam template. And then based on my specialization in migraines, concussion and vestibular um, fellowship stuff, it's more geared towards those. But realistically, you can do the same exam on every single patient if you see the same type of patient. So like headache and migraines, you're generally going to do the same exam framework with each one of these folks. But if you're seeing like every kid, you know, you're just taking people off the street, that's going to be extremely time restrictive in that you, yeah, it just that just wouldn't work unless you had all the time in the world. Uh, but in terms of the funk neuro, what I incorporate, I incorporate as much as I can with every single patient because that's what my practice has been built to serve. Yeah, that's an interesting, I, I can't believe I forgot cranial nerves. I mean, like I do a cranial nerve exam and everybody. And um, those those things, again, like I remember going through school and, and um, yeah. I remember going through that thinking like, this is some mixer shit, you know, like this has nothing to do with like what I want to do. Yep. But that was a fool's errand. So if you're a student and you're going through those classes and you're thinking like, ah, this is, this is medipractic. I, nope. if I'll just say, if you're going to be an upper cervical chiropractor, I think it's worth developing those skills. Absolutely. Um, I agree. And if you, if you don't think that it's principled or whatever, that's okay. You don't have to, you should probably still do it. You know, yeah. you don't have to, 
you don't have to like uh, agree with the you know the philosophy of it but you know if you do things like cardinal fields of gaze and accommodation and direct and indirect pupil light reflexes and you know even just like like you said reflex i do reflexes on people all the time it's insane how often you'll see changes and differences in reflexes side to side top to bottom upper and lower extremities it's amazing it's interesting it is and 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 by the way you don't have to go try to treat all this stuff directly this is one thing i really appreciate about dr chung's course was his the way he presented it was like these are things you can observe and you can measure and you can document and then you can check them later over time and you're going to see a lot of this stuff improve if you're doing good upper cervical work which is awesome yeah that makes a case that there's a systemic multi-system, multimodal neurological impact of an upper cervical subluxation. And if you do a good job taking care of it, you can't see multi-system, multimodal improvements in the nervous system. That's really cool. That's what we've been saying. You know, it's, it's even better if you can measure it. And then if they don't improve, then you know what to do, you know, because there's a lot of folks that, especially when you're talking about complex cases, which we're going to talk about in a minute, you know, the, the, Upper cervical subluxation is not the only pathophysiological, to use that word, thing that a patient's likely experiencing. It may be the only thing that you directly care for, but it's like Dr. Carter used to tell us, like patients are entitled to more than one problem. Absolutely. They can be subluxated and have vestibular dysfunction. Um, We don't have to make our thing be the one thing Mm -hmm. because you're going to help these people so much. And then if you can help them connect with other providers or other resources that are going to improve their symptomatic presentation or going to make the quality of life better. And some of this information will help you do that. Yeah. Uh, and I think that's a value to your patient. So if you want more information on this stuff, check out, go to the Carrick um, website. You can, I believe, purchase Dr. Chung's course mm-hmm. for, for a replay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can spend what was it, like 12 or 16 hours maybe of like, just go through, the yeah. upper cervical neurology concepts for upper cervical chiropractors. Um, it's, it's all there. It's heavy lifting. I mean, it's a lot. I've revisited my notes from that. I have like 80 pages of notes over and over. Cause I, it takes me time to integrate this stuff. Absolutely. But look into it. If it's interesting to you, look into it, go back to your notes. Um, if, if you haven't taken these courses in school yet, when you get to them, really work on it, you know, yeah. work on getting those skills right away, mm-hmm. practice those skills in the clinic. Don't take them for granted and don't treat them lightly, but those, those neurodiagnosis skills will serve you well in practice. It'll quite honestly, I think it'll, it'll make the difference between you being a successful doctor and not in terms of if like your, if your intervention is, we'll just say, or your, your approach is subluxation removal or, or reduction. That's great. But if that person has a major neurological issue that hasn't been diagnosed, uh, you're going to want to note that because you're going to potentially have to explain that to 12 people who couldn't get out of jury duty that day, right? To quote McCoy. Hey, that drives me every day. But it's you you have to take the stuff as a student. You have to take the stuff seriously. You know, we try and get through it with boards and it's like, man, I'm not going to use this stuff. No, you should use it every single day because just like Carter, Carter said, people are entitled to more than one thing, and they usually have a shit ton of things going on that maybe are interrelated or maybe aren't. But again, you are a licensed doctor, whether people want to believe that or not. The federal government, for what it's worth, classifies us as essentially portal of entry. So you better fucking no, you better primary fuck, care. Yeah, geez, um, that's, that's even worse. More liability than portal of entry. Exactly. So like if you don't figure this shit out, someone's going to do it and you may be cross-examined for it. You want to make sure that you can adequately care for another human being. And if you have to cross a couple extra bridges to do so, don't be a schmuck and do it. Right? It's not hard. It's easy. They're giving you all the tools. But especially these classes in school like Amos um, and some of the higher level like diagnosis and classes – you know, I see people on Whitey pages all the time getting rid of their SUSE and their, their skeletal radiology. I'm like, what are you guys fucking doing? I'm like, you need to keep this stuff. This is really important. If you're going to do the, quote, complex cases, you need to understand what comes with complex cases. It's, good. it's a good point because every time I have conversations with students about, you know, what got them into upper cervical care, they all say the same thing. I want to help complex cases. Sure. I don't think you know what you're saying you know, when yeah. you say that because, you know, I said this on a podcast uh couple episodes ago it's like in my first year of practice i had folks with chiari malformations like epilepsy conditions just like you know and and if you feel strongly enough that 
just doing a technique assessment is appropriate for those people, I think you should probably reevaluate that. Yeah. Um, but it's, it's a lot, you know, these people are suffering, you know, and I think that's at the end of the day, if, if people are entrusting you with their well health and well being, especially yeah. people that are suffering and have already yeah. been through a lot, you know, just to try to arrive at some help. I, I don't think there's any reason to not just slow down with those particular situations, get a little bit more data, show that you're taking your time and you're, you're being careful and considering their condition. And, yeah. you know, if your practice management consultant tells you, you only need 10 minutes for an exam, you know, yeah. so that you can save the world and help more people, then maybe don't go after complex cases. Yep. You know, and I'm not saying that you can't do a good, you know, upper cervical evaluation in, you know, a reasonable amount of time, but with these complex cases, like you're going to end up troubleshooting later if you don't get the right information in the beginning. That, that's my experience. So for what it's worth. Yeah, those physical exam skills are actually really useful. And, and even before that, I think a good history in the first place is irreplaceable. I mean, you can have the best exam skills in the world, but if you don't really have a good understanding of what getting the information from the patient that you need to in the first place so that you know what exam procedures to do, because I mean, you, you know this. People don't tell us everything we need to know. They tell us what they think we want to know. Exactly. Which is, I've got neck pain. Yeah. Okay. And then you start, you know, these people put nothing on their intake form, right? <laughs> and then you start questioning about other things. And it's like, oh, yeah, I've got a family history of neurodegenerative disorders. Yeah. And I've got this tremor that I didn't tell you about. And I've got, you know, significant history of, you know, multiple whiplash injuries, concussions, brain, you know, there's like... When, when people think about chiropractors, they think about musculoskeletal pain relief for better or worse. So there's going to be some of this information that you have to get out of your patient in the first place by taking a good history and having a good consult. So I have a story that I think this is like, it's crazy how, uh, how applicable this is. I saw a patient yesterday, one of my last patients of the day. This is someone who I've been treating for, I've been seeing for over four years, right? And now we see them infrequently because they're doing good. It's a younger person. They've been in college locally. And so... Uh, hadn't seen them, I think about six months or whatnot. And I'd gotten a little bit of background on this patient before uh, a parent had contacted and said, Hey, here's what's going on. We're, they're going to see an optometrist who does some neuro stuff. And then we want them to come see you. And I'm like, that's great. So they did the eye stuff first. They came and saw me and we sat in the waiting room for probably 15 minutes. I didn't touch them. I just sat there and questioned, Hey, what's going on? Well, what's changed? Long story short, Headaches, okay, which is something that has been frequent for them, but they have calmed down. And then all of a sudden, boom, at the start of the semester, headaches pop back up. And I said, okay, what's changed? Well, not much, X, Y, Z. Oh, have you declared a major yet? Yes, I declared chemistry. Interesting. Have you been in a chem lab? Yes. Is this the first time you've been in a chem lab? Yes. Okay. Would you say that there's strong scents or strong smells in that chem lab? Oh, yeah, sometimes it's unbearable. Okay. So that's probably creating a headache, right? And we dug into it a little bit more and we stopped. I checked them out structurally, posturally, everything was clear. No signs of upper cervical subluxation. We did a little bit of soft tissue and we, we the entire party agreed, hey, we, we need to modify, right? The, the in-class type of scenario here. So wear a mask. That's probably what it's good for. Maybe put some things up your nose a little bit, because if you want to be a chem major, you're either going to have to change majors, right? Or you're going to have to figure this out. But it was the history. I could have taken five seconds, brought them in, checked them, maybe found something, you know, whipped them up and sent them on their way. But that wasn't the right thing to do, because as it turns out, they didn't have structural or neurological sign that they needed an intervention relative to their symptom. That I was so happy about that. I slept like a freaking baby because I knew I did the right thing. And we all arrived at was likely what the cause of the problem is. So the history is the most important thing. You need to do a history. You need to find reasons not to touch these people, not to adjust these people. Because not everyone needs a freaking adjustment. I had a conversation with a student about that. Well, what technique would you? No, 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 no. You need to be a clinician and a doctor and make sure that this person actually needs some sort of treatment in your office. History, 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 exam, then treatment in that order. Nothing before. Well, and, and I think the point of that particular example is that that's an ongoing conversation. Yes. Right? It's, not, it's, not a, it's not a form that they fill out once and then they just come in open-ended forever based yep. on that, that initial conversation. 
I tell patients this all the time. Like there's a lot of life that happens in between appointments. There's a lot of things that you experience and encounter that I don't know about. You're probably not even paying attention to that can impact how you feel and how your body functions and impacts, you know, what we need to do with them clinically. And so I think that there's a skill of developing patient rapport of developing trust so that people tell you things that you need to know and of knowing how to read the verbal and nonverbal signs that there's, there's further conversation required, you know, and, and that might upset your schedule. Sometimes that might put a little bit of a, um, it might put you a little bit behind if you run super tight, you know, with back to back to back appointments, you know, I've, I've changed, I've modified the way that I schedule patients and the way that my schedule set up because I had enough situations where I was like, man, we got to, you know, I got to like get a little bit more information about this. Um, and and that's again, just being a clinician, there's different reasons why people practice in, in the ways that they do. Um, and and the, the weird thing about upper cervical is like, this is just the world I know. I don't know. It's probably like this for a conventional chiropractic or whatever else too. It's like, you have to choose your, your priorities, you know, and you have to choose, with your, with your business, with your practice flow, with your exam procedures, with your intake, with your daily checkups, with your re-exams, you know, with your uh, outcome assessments, with your case management, like you have to choose the things that are important. And then you have to set your practice up so that those things that are important are prioritized. Absolutely. And so there's different ways of doing that. Okay. And I'll just share a personal experience. Like I had a practice management company that I did a brief stint of online coaching with, and I sh- kid you not, I'm almost embarrassed to say this, but like the, the goal was a hundred patients a day. If you didn't see a hundred patients a day, you weren't a quote big dog. Wow. And what that meant was this, this was the gold standard of an office visit. You shoot, you shoot for 90 seconds, you get them in, you adjust them, you make a referral statement and you send them on their way. Yeah. And mm. there are upper cervical people that practice that way and get good results. I'm not saying they don't help people, but I just wonder if I had pursued that model and if I continued to work toward that, what would I miss? You know, what, what opportunities to help that person would I miss? You know, what um, liability would I expose myself to for missing those points? Um, and so I think, you know, for, for each of us like that, that to me was, that was not a practice model that I felt good about. That's not something I could spend my life doing and sleep well at night, you know, and that's no, that's no slight at anybody that practices that way. I'm just saying for myself and, and each doctor has to choose for themselves what those priorities are. Absolutely. Um, and, and I didn't feel that, that that philosophy fit with an upper cervical you know, model that I with the patients that I was seeing. So I've had to modify and change my practice style based on that. And there are a lot of people that are doing good clinical work, seeing a ton of people, not cutting corners, helping a lot, you know, and you don't have to sacrifice your clinical expertise, you know, to, to be able to help people and you can help more people. You can help people more, you know, there's different ways you can prioritize that. But anyway, we're, we're running out of time here, but there's a couple more um, questions that are a little bit related to case management and they're, they're almost two sides of the same coin, but there's some nuances to it. So one is, can you practice upper cervical with just diversified I think when we when we say diversify, we're talking about you know just diversified technique, conventional upper cervical manipulation, if you want to call it that, or con- conventional spinal adjustments, you know, yeah. manipulation, whatever you, term you want to use with that. The way I interpreted this question was, can I prioritize upper cervical but not do an upper cervical technique mm. without being certified, without having the imaging, without doing the fancy tools, without the fancy tables? Like, can I practice in a way that prioritizes upper cervical? outcomes without upper cervical technique. That's the way I, I interpreted the question. Maybe you interpreted it differently, but what are your thoughts? I think we interpreted it similarly, but that's, that's, I mean, I think if you were to ask the, the purist and you know, like the, the technique folks, they're going to say no, obviously. Uh, but in terms of like, of course you can, you can apply upper cervical concepts, whether it's the philosophy or whether it is the mechanisms you can you can do this from like using a more diversified, like Gonstead, SOT, or uh, uh, Thompson. Diver- in my mind, diversified is taking the joint through the paraphysiological range of motion. So you're like, it's a, it's a, it is a manual manipulation by the like governmental, you know, standards, so to say, whatever. I think you can do that in absolute ease. And if you really wanted to kind of take it a step above and maybe kind of fill each cup, you could. Blair is probably the more easy, the more 
simplest technique to integrate into an, a full spine or a diversified practice. You have a toggle table, you do your C1, C2, C3 checks, adjust if necessary, and then move on, right? You don't even need a toggle table. You can potentially use just a drop table. So in that regard, absolutely, you can practice upper cervical with, with a diversified technique. Now, in terms of can you do upper cervical using an, a diversified technique, my answer to that depends on the day and depends on the type of patient that walks into the practice. So we see a handful of patients, unfortunately, it's a, it's a more than a small percentage that have been injured by a conventional manipulation to the upper cervical region. So I'm a little on edge about, you know, doing stuff like that, but like a Gonstead type approach or uh, a Thompson type approach, uh, if that, if that practitioner is, is using restraint and being conservative with their methods, you should be just fine. There should be no issue with that whatsoever. But if you have the Y strap or you have, you know, the, the ring dinger or something like that, you're going to fuck someone up. Like I have plenty of patients who have had axonal shear injuries of their literal brain stem with that type of stuff. But I think that that's a huge gray area in terms of can you do it with a diversified technique? You can. I would say proceed with caution tremendously because of the anatomy of the region. Paraphysiological space, you're taking the joint through the range of motion. There's no disc up there, right? It's just bony locks. You can blow through that CCJ and you can create a shit, you can, uh, a poop storm. Like it can just, it can go very south, very fast. Uh, so tread with caution. Yeah. And I would say with that, that question, it's kind of like, why would you want to? I mean, if you want to get, because here's the, here's the question behind the question is like, can I get upper cervical results, but not be accountable to all this technique yeah. details? And I would say, if you want upper cervical results, you got to do upper cervical procedures. You know, it's like, if you want to do diversified, that's fine. Every diversified chiropractor I know says they adjust the Atlas. Yeah. But I think if we were to qualify, how do you arrive at the idea that the Atlas needs to be adjusted? How do you adjust it? How do you know that you did a proper adjustment? How long does your adjustment last? Like these, these things that make upper cervical distinct, I think are, they're just sort of at odds with, with a diversified philosophy or approach. Okay. So, you know, I would just say if if you're interested in upper cervical, like, learn upper cervical, you know, yeah. just learn a technique, go to some seminars, get an idea of what it is about upper cervical that you know, that you don't know the things that are important or not important. And, and just instead of trying to do upper cervical light, you know, or just kind I mean, of like, upper cervical light. That's, yeah. I mean, it's, it's I kind of, cervical. yeah, it's like, just go, just go learn some upper cervical stuff, you know, yeah. like really test it as its own thing. Because I think the average upper cervical chiropractor who's been doing this for any amount of time would say it's not the same, you know, like the, the, the intervention, the intention, the assessments, the it's different. That's the whole point. So, so as it relates to adjusting the upper cervical region, every, every chiropractor does that, right? Everybody says that they're doing that quote specifically, but we're, we all have offices full of people that have you know, tried conventional chiropractic have had their upper neck manipulated and did not get the same outcome that they got when they had a little bit more attention to detail with that region. So yeah. uh, I would encourage you just to say, like, devote some time to learning it specifically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, second question, last one. When a patient is, quote, holding their adjustment, are there other modalities that you use for pain alleviation? Uh. <laughs> So this one I feel like is the dirtiest question in all of upper cervical, right? Like filthy. I'm just going to take a hose right to it. Philosophically, people come, well, philosophically, you're trying to reduce what we'll we'll, we'll call the atlas subluxation complex, right? Quite honestly, patients don't give a shit about that. They want to feel really good. And yeah, if someone's not feeling good in my, my inside like drive is I still want this patient to feel good because I don't like seeing people suffer, which is probably why I do what I do. So I'm going to do some sort of, you know, a secondary program as Dr. Sweat put it. Um, yeah, like I'll use, I've been certified and trained, well, not certified anymore, but trained in ART. Um, I use that every day, you know, I'll use PIR concepts, a lot of acronyms, uh, but it, absolutely. I will do things to help alleviate musculoskeletal pain because there's science behind that. And I can defend myself and my usage of these things. I know the general outcome that's going to happen. And if it can speed up the process while they're quote holding, you're damn right. I'm going to do something. 
I'm not going to give them the ring dinger, right? But it's going to be something along the lines of a conservative modality geared at um, pain reduction. And uh, everyone's going to squawk and say, oh, no, a lot. Most, uh, and I love this, most upper cervical practitioners, most are doing some other type of pain relief, whether it's laser or whether it's massage, not saying they're doing massage, but you look at your average upper cervical practice and they have other modalities, regardless of whatever they say from the stage. Depression. Front and center and say it. There's nothing wrong with it. And if someone like Dr. Roy Sweat, who is basically upper cervical Jesus, says that we need a secondary program, it's good enough for me to do it. So me personally, absolutely. not. You do things differently than I do. So let's hear how you poke and prod. There's a couple there's a couple ways to answer this question and I think the first part of it is that you got your patient holding. Yeah. You know that you did a good job with your upper cervical technique in the first place. And and I think that takes a certain amount of time to to learn as well. And and one of the things that a lot of seasoned upper cervical docs will say about a question like this is you know a lot of folks are quick to jump to ancillary procedures when they just didn't get good upper cervical outcomes in the first place. And, and that's a very reasonable answer to the question. And so at first glance, I think there's, there's a couple of ways you could approach this. Number one is, is determine for yourself what amount of time you want to devote exclusively to doing upper cervical technique so that you can develop your skills, so that you can understand case management, so that you can actually see in the first place if and when there are gaps to be filled. Yeah. Um, that was the approach that I took and I think it was wise. You know, I spent, some people wouldn't think it's enough time and that's okay. But I think I probably spent the first three years scared to death, to touch sacrum, you know, because, because I was told, and this, this is the thing is like, if you do other things and it upsets their upper cervical progress, that's a net detriment to their health and their progress. And so that was the assumption I was working with is like, if I do other things, it's going to impact their recovery and their healing process under upper cervical care, which is not what I want. That's the thing that they're here for. I don't know that I believe that now that if you do other things, it will impact your upper cervical outcomes. That's just my personal experience and I've tested it. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when, when it comes down to Pain alleviation, right? Because that was the specific question is like, yeah. what else can you do for pain alleviation? And that's going to depend on your own chiropractic values and the things that you think are within your scope as their as their provider. Absolutely. Right? Because I've been in plenty of upper cervical offices and saw BioFreeze on the counter or Blue, whatever the doTERRA version of it is, yeah. or have had folks that, you know, they rub essential oils on it. They give folks a, you know, lacrosse ball to do trigger point work. And, and I think the fact that, people feel dirty asking the question is a problem. You know, like we all get to choose if you, if you just like, I remember hearing Dr. Schulten say at the ICA forum, it might've been this year, last year. He's like, he, he tracks everything very specifically. So he's got very good stats on his upper cervical only outcomes as a NUCA practitioner. And he said, I've only adjusted an Atlas. I don't adjust an ankle. I don't adjust a thoracic. I don't do a stretch. I don't, I know exactly what I'm capable of as an upper cervical chiropractor, because I've measured it exclusively. I have a lot of respect for that. And I think that's a very honorable and reasonable way to practice. There are other people that say, you know what, like, like to your point, I really have a hard time with telling patients holding is healing when they're suffering. And I see that objectively that the upper cervical indicators are, are showing that we're doing the right things and that they're on the right path, but they still just have some, you know, some things that I feel I could help them with and they feel personally convicted that that's a good thing to do. I, I think that's also an honorable and reasonable way to practice that introduces variables, you know, yeah. inevitably like you're the patient may not understand what thing helped them feel better. And so for a lot of upper cervical people, they, they want to really reinforce that upper cervical care is the benefit that they have to offer. And if you start, stretching them, adjusting them full spine or whatever, they're going to, they're not going to know how to attribute their results to which thing. I agree. And, and, and frankly, they're probably going to equate the pain relief with the thing that you did that provided the short-term pain relief, yep. whether that had anything to do with their upper cervical adjustment or not. So that that's kind of like, you've got to be able to 
to pick your battles. You've got to be able to, I think, do it in a way that is clinically reasonable back to the history and the exam and, and having, having a reason why you would do something for pain alleviation, not just because what's well, going to keep the patient coming in. Yeah. It's going to keep them coming back for more. It's going to, you know, gratify them in the short term so that they don't quit. You know, that's not the reason to do it. But if there's a clinical reason to do it, you have, you know, objective testing that suggests that it's time to yeah. do that. Um, and then you have a way to track that progress over time and communicate with your patient when and how you choose to incorporate different things, what the upper cervical portion of their care is related to, what the other things are related to. Then I think you can do it. You know, I think you can do it reasonably. I agree. You know, whether it, whether it's something you do actively with them hands on, whether it's a passive modality, like I know a lot of upper cervical docs that have decompression in their office. Yeah. You don't always hear that, you know, but some of these uh, really really high dollar clinics, they're they're doing supported procedures like DRX nine thousand yeah. to provide a pain relief benefit to the patient, to provide an ancillary service, and uh, you know they seem to merge those concepts okay. Yeah. And then you'll have other folks that are highly successful that just do C one only. Yep. Or a technique only. So you don't have to choose, but you as an individual are accountable to your patients. So you have to determine for yourself what you think is appropriate, what you think is within your scope and your skill set. And you need to be accountable for whatever you do or don't do. I mean, that's that's kind of the way I look at it. But I do say there is there is benefit in doing upper cervical exclusively for a significant en enough amount of time that you know how good you are or where you're just not doing a good job with upper cervical. Yeah. So don't be quick to jump to that stuff. You really don't have to do a lot. I don't think. Um, and I've gone through periods where I've been more or less aggressive with like ancillary procedures. And, you know, I think in general with sort of manual therapy, if you want to just lump all this stuff together, less is more, yeah. you know, less done well is definitely more. Mic drop moment right there. Well, here's a sort of as we wrap up here, this is kind of interesting because when we put these questions out, I thought the character of the nature of the questions was really interesting, right? We've been having a lot of conversation about stuff that's not traditional, pure upper cervical rationale. Yeah. And it's interesting that those are the questions that we're getting, you know, and those, a lot of the conversations that I've had with docs at the back of the conference are different times, like about stuff like this. Yeah. So I don't know if that's just inexperience you know, asking questions, like some people would say, well, these people don't really even, they're asking the wrong questions because they don't know yet. Maybe that's true. I think there is a little bit of a, I think, I think some folks approach upper cervical and, and, and see it from the outside looking in as dogmatic yeah. as, as in like, Hey, if you don't do upper cervical only, you're a second class citizen in the upper cervical world. And, you know, for some folks, that's probably true. Uh, and they probably really feel that way. And we see the people who are constantly, uh, presenting their perspectives on social media in groups. I will train you how to do this right because nobody gets it anymore. And that's yeah. okay. But at the end of the day, you got to sleep. You got to sleep at night knowing that you, you're accountable to your patients first, in my opinion, and then the profession. Yeah. So I, I just don't see the uh, moral, the, the moral like uh, obligation to choose one way or the other. Uh, I do see the individual responsibility, you know, to choose what's right for your patients. And that, that might mean that for some patients you do upper cervical exclusively. That may mean for 95% of your patients, you do upper cervical exclusively. You might have a small percentage where you need to, you know, pick and choose a couple strategies that are supportive. Absolutely. So there's lots of different ways to put this stuff together. We're not saying that you have to adjust the Atlas and on the next visit, you need to give them a flying seven and stretch them and do all this stuff. Like there, there are thoughtful clinical reasons to do, you know, to do supportive procedures. And, and there's, there's ways to do that that doesn't detract from the upper cervical rationale in my mind. But uh, again, each, each person's accountable for their own. Uh, these are questions that were presented to us. We're just answering them according to our own, our priorities and values and experience and perspectives and opinions. Again, yeah. we're not the authorities on the subject. If folks have you know, thoughts they'd like to add to the conversation, things that they think we said wrong, other considerations to add to the context. I'm all ears, you know, again, get in touch, reach out to so, to us on social media or via email at Blair Cairo podcast and, and share your, your side of it. Eager to have any and all perspectives uh, that are willing to go on the record and share their point of view. I think it's uh, only adds to having the conversations at a higher level. So absolutely. Thanks for sending in the questions. If you sent us a question and we couldn't get it to specifically today, we do have <clears throat> plans for a second episode to get into some of those 
uh, deeper questions, ones that require a little bit more time. Uh, so keep the questions coming and uh, keep doing good work. Keep living, learning, and uh, you know, trying hard to, to be a good upper cervical practitioner because it, it's important for the communities that you're in and for our profession. Hey, we just wanted to say thank you for listening to Atlas of Chiropractic. We really hope you enjoyed this episode. Go ahead and subscribe to the show and turn on notifications so that you're the first to know about new episodes. Leave a rating and review to let others know how you really feel about the conversations we're having. And last thing, check the show notes for relevant links, contact info, and resources that we mentioned during this episode. 